0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to our PPA series. In terms of the speakers today, we're going to kick off with with Claire Watkins, who is the head of the professional practice uh, at at Buzzacott, which is one of uh, London's leading accounting firms. Uh, she's going to talk about the financial issues, unsurprisingly, and then we will go on to, uh, to David Shufflebotham, whose specialism is around governance and compensation and partnerships, so very, very relevant uh, to today's webinar, and, and, and David's going to talk about those issues, and particularly in the context of the time frame uh, in which one needs to tackle these issues. We'll then go on to, um, to, to Fernando Palais, who certainly everybody in Latin America, I'm sure, knows well. He's one of the most uh, the well-known personalities, I dare say, in legal services in Latin America. And he's going to talk about family-owned firms in particular, the, the particular sec- uh, transition issues around those firms. And then we've got Zulon Begum, who heads up the transactional practices at the employment and partnership law firm, CM Murray. Uh, so her particular expertise is around the non-contentious issues related to, to partnerships and to governance and mergers and, uh, and such like. And she's going to draw it all together in terms of how one needs to deal with these in terms of things like uh, the governance documents. But let's kick off with, with Claire. I mean, Claire, sh- should Naked In, Naked Out apply uh, to founders? Uh, how, if not, how should valuation be approached? Um, how should it be accounted for in the business plan? Uh, up to you.
1: I suppose with Naked In, Naked Out, what you're being asked to do is put a value on, on blood, sweat and tears from setting the business up. And, you know, that's very difficult to do. And even if you do manage to do it, even if it's valuable to... The founders, is it valuable to the next generation and do they really want to pay for, um, you know, for for the effort that the founders have put in? Do they see that value continuing to the point that they've joined the firm? Um, And if they don't want to pay it, then there's not an awful lot that the founders can do. Um, I I suppose, really, I was thinking about the the different ways of... um, of valuing um, you know the contribution that founders will and other partners make to to a business i suppose there are four basic models Um, one is the the most common one which is you know you have your capital account and your profits but you don't have any you don't bear any further share of the increase in the value of the firm over time if the firm's value has increased so there's no sort of goodwill element Uh, that can be attractive to a new generation who are coming in because they don't have to pay to join the business outside putting in some capital perhaps but there's no additional um, value that they have to pay for when they join the second one might be thinking about things like an annuity after retirement and although there aren't so many of those around anymore we do have firms that do still have annuity arrangements But the difficulty with those is it's fine for the partners who are retiring, then they've got an annuity that can last many years, uh, but it's got to be paid from the profits and therefore it's got to be paid by the partners who are continuing in the business. So if you're trying to attract a new generation of partners, that's very tricky because they're coming in and having to pay out partners who they may never have met before. The third one, I think, is is a sort of consultancy agreement uh, or some kind of earnings after you've left the business. And this is incredibly common. And I find that most consultancy agreements are linked in some way to performance, but they're mostly linked to work that's brought in or um, billing, which is very easy to track, but I'm not sure it's the right way to, to deal with it. It might be better to link it to the successful transitioning of clients over a period of time or, or not link it to anything at all, but just be available. The person can be available for a period of time um, and receive a consultancy fee for that. If they are needed and if they are you know, run ragged, then, then they may end up doing more work than their consultancy fee really covers but equally they may not be needed. They may have done such a successful transition to the next generation that they, they basically take their consultancy fee and, and they don't really have to do very much for the business. And the fourth one is having a valuation-based structure so that partners, this is basically the goodwill element, so partners buy in and are potentially paid out more when they retire than the total of the capital and undrawn profits that they had in the business. But that leads to a question of how do you value that And, um, you know, I think that the the question of value, which is something that we get asked about a lot, is quite often linked to past results. And, you know, you look back at the last three years or the last five years, but actually value is more based on the future of the business and the future value than on the past. So I think if you're looking at, um, you know, developing a realistic valuation for a firm, Unfortunately, there's no handy database of how much law firms have sold for. It's not something that you can just get off the internet and say, "Well, these ten here sold for this much, and we're reasonably similar, so that that should do." There may be value in in recurring work. I certainly have a client that has a, a very large wills bank, and they've applied a value to that, which is you know is tradable basically. Um, but there's so there may be a value in some recurring work. There's value in client stickability, but you have to assess whether the, the clients are sticking with the firm or sticking with the partner because ultimately the value is in the people who are running the business, those partners. But you've got to always look at the future of the business. And if you've done such a great job of um, <clears throat> training up the next generation and passing on your clients to the next generation such that the firm can continue to thrive without you then I think you've created a fantastic value for the firm and maybe there is some model, a goodwill value model that can be implemented so that you do leave with more than you put into the business. Alternatively, if you're looking, just looking back at when you started the business, then I think it's very difficult to place a value on that unless it's been tracked from the start and, um, you know, put together in such a way that it's understandable by by people who are coming in later down the track. Um, I think what we, what we see quite often and what, firms have to be careful of when they're transitioning is thinking about the fact that the next generation may not want to come through and run the firm and they could easily just jump ship and set up another business and in fact some of our most successful certainly law firms have been startups where a group of partners have broken out of much larger firms either because they didn't get equity when they thought they should do or they you know they just don't feel that they can take the firm in the direction that they want to So they break out and they start up their own very niche practice. And typically they do really well. They, you know, they hit the ground running. Um, They've got great ideas and they are really great businesses to work with. Um, But alternatively, there are some next generation of partners who maybe miss the the fact that the business that they're working for, they have a great opportunity to run what is already an established business. And, And there may be a price to pay for doing that but it is already established business. You don't have to start from scratch again. So I think one of the things that firms need to do is bring the next generation into the decision-making and the leadership as as soon as possible. And and from what I see, that isn't done quickly enough in in most cases. I think if you stop and and think right now, who are my successes in the practice? If the answer, if your answer is, well, actually, I don't know, I can't find any, then you need to address that straight away. Most firms, well, no, not most firms, many firms leave it, far too late and then they're knocking at our door to ask how to get the money out of the business, how to get their capital and current account out of the business and they haven't really thought about the successes coming through who are going to keep that business valuable and ultimately allow them to get their their investment out of business and potentially more. Um, I think another thing, well I mean talking about the, the, the money actually, the money aspect and when you should discuss this, I think the main, problem is withdraw- the main problem we see is withdrawing partner investment, such that the partner is happy with the terms of the repayment and the business can cope with the cash outflow. It, it's quite common that um, partners may have an unrealistic expectation of how much their business is worth. The next generation doesn't want to pay for that. Even if they do have a realistic expectation of how much the business is worth, they have to plan ahead and look at when that cash outflow is going to hit. Because most businesses, and this isn't just exclusive to law firms, this is an awful lot of other businesses, only really look about 12 months ahead, certainly when it comes to cash flow. And and really, you need to be thinking about three to five years ahead if you're thinking about your own exit from a firm. And it's the same with partners coming in. You know, you need to think about who are those partners coming in and when are they going to make a capital payment into the business business? have those difficult conversations early with exiting partners and talk early early on with them about what they plan to do. Do they plan to sign up to a consultancy agreement? And if so, on what basis? Uh, I think business plans can help with this, but I very rarely see a business plan that has an exit strategy in it. I sometimes do, and that tends to be businesses that probably are not designed to be long term they know they want to invest in the business create a really good well-run business and then sell it and so that's part of the plan from the off but business plans typically don't talk about the exit and and of course a business plan is something that is revisited or should be revisited fairly frequently it's not just a thing that you do at the beginning of the business and then you leave so I think it needs to be updated more often than we tend to see um, and you need to be stress testing the, the forecast to take account of people who are leaving and where the cash flow pinches are going to be, working out when when you can pay people out or if you can't, and thinking about um, contingencies. I mean, you know, the, the pandemic that we're all in or hopefully coming out of is exactly that sort of thing. You would never anticipate that to happen. But I think there needs to be some kind of contingency in business plans that, um that. Is stress tested so that you know that you've got the cash available to pay partners out Um, so i think ultimately i think having the having the conversations very early on with um, exiting partners and also partners that are joining is absolutely vital Um, and i i don't see that happen often enough and when it comes to value um I think it is possible to have a a, a value in a business that is above and beyond what you the capital and the current account that you've got sitting in the business. Um, But it it really is a restructuring that um, is often advantageous to some but not to others who are wanting to to buy into the business.
0: Thank you, Claire. Uh, There's a reason that we started with the money. Uh, It it, it really does underpin everything and it's the issue that leads most commonly to problems what we're going to do now is go on to David and David walk us through the the time frames uh, walk us through the the how how the relationships need to change uh, between the partners and how the governance systems need to change as you move from the being partner led uh, founder led to sometimes the founders have run the firm for many decades to an entirely new generation Uh, over to you.
2: Uh, thanks, Rob. I'm going to use um, some slides uh, now just to illustrate this point. I've only got a couple. So don't worry. It's not death by, by PowerPoint. Um, so I think one of the things that you've really got to be clear on um, when you're looking at transitioning uh, in any business like this from founder led to perpetual, perpetual governance models is what is the business model that you're actually running? Um, because, in um, most professional services businesses that are set up as partnerships, equity partner return is really comes in the form of annual profit distributions, and they're derived largely from unsupervised but highly conscientious effort of more junior partners or lawyers. It's the leverage model. It is largely what law firms have done for hundreds of years. Um, And the equity partners are creaming off that bit of super profit that's created by others. And the deal is that those highly conscientious people putting in that effort are doing that on the understanding that they will get a chance, not a guarantee, no way guarantee, but a chance of one day standing in the shoes of equity partners and doing the same. So the vast majority of law firms over time have done this. And that is a really, really strong perpetual partnership or what I call perpetual sweat for access to equity profits model or the naked in naked out model. So it's strong and stable and hugely successful business model and is capable of creating massive levels of wealth for equity partners. But it is not conducive to delivering a capital event for retiring founders for all the reason Claire has just gone into. You know, why should I sit there? having worked really conscientiously as a next generation partner pushed the profit up to the founders and the existing equity partners then when they come to say ah but you need to top that up now with a payment um, to me because i'm relying on it for my retirement so it's a difficult model to create a capital event from and i think that's probably where and 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 uh, you know, Claire will come back on this if, if if she wants to, where some of that difficulty in, in being realistic about um, what retiring partners, founders especially, should be taking out by the way of founder premium, because in the eyes of the next generation, that founder premium actually has always, already been supplied. So we have entered a new era, of course, because now more firms are listing or creating capital events and, um, around their business or around certain assets that they own. So, you know, business process, um, proprietary rights and systems are all ways in which you can create capital value. Uh, But if you look at those capital events where firms list or take outside investment, it's generally going to a pool of people. So you're creating a capital event for the next generation as well as yourself, you know, the existing equity partners. Um, And often that involves tying people in for a period of time. So there is a way to do it, but it also involves sharing with um, the others in the business who, as as Claire put it really beautifully, you know, give their blood, sweat and tears in order to take out the equity profit from the business. Now, that is not particularly um, good news for uh, equity partners or founders because they have had to shoulder all the burden of that early setup and the risk that they've taken, et cetera. So it's not an easy um, message to give, but this first point of being clear about the business model you're operating is critical. And just to re-echo what Claire said, you need to be really clear with the next generation and yourself as to how you and they <clears throat> should expect to earn and achieve the desired returns in the business. So once you've settled what the, what the, Mode of operation is it becomes a lot clearer, and therefore your way forward is a lot lot more clear. But it needs talking about. Um, I'm sure Zulan will will come and talk about you know uh, how you do this in the constituent founding documents of the of the business, but it also needs talking about and kept live. Okay, so um, when Rob and I have been actually working on some of the analysis of of this type of founder led business and this transition, we've developed. Uh, a a little matrix, uh, pretty much Rob's work, but we've developed a matrix in order to uh, look at how you might analyze where you sit as a business, whatever business model you're running, and as to what sort of things you might need to do in transition. So what we uh, created a two-by-two against was, um, first of all, what are the founding partners, current and expected contributions to the business. So what, it, what is it that the founding partners are thinking, this is what I'm doing currently, and this is what I'm prepared to or want to do in the future. Now that can range from being a totally continuing active partner in the business to wanting to spend a lot of time on the beach or the golf course or uh, growing uh, begonias. And um, So that ranges from high to low. The other axis here we've got, what about the next generation of partners? what are their current and expected contributions to the business? So how do they feel about what they're giving at the moment and what they're expecting to give in the future and how effective are they? And again, high to low. Now, if we look at the different quadrants here, it'll give you an idea of what, what you might need to do as a business, as founders, etc. So if the founding partners are not currently giving much to the business and don't expect to give much in the future, and the next gen are thinking, mm, OK, well, what can we contribute? But they haven't been brought on to give that contribution. You've got bigger problems than worrying about transition. You've got a problem of current viability. So hopefully, as, as, as you know, anybody on this call is, um, is thinking about this, you're not in that position because that's really about reigniting the business as opposed to anything else. If, however, you've got a founding partner who's very dominant in the business, holding a lot of the key client contacts, still do quite a bit of the work, and they are contributing a very large amount, but the next generation hasn't been brought on, so their current level of input and contribution is low, the founding partner's really got to start working, as, as Claire pointed out earlier on, working on that next generation to say, come into the leadership, come and develop some of the skills that you're going to need to step into my shoes or our shoes and let's start transitioning now. So that's a sort of really um, succession plan heavy uh, quadrant to be in. Those founding partners really need to drive um, the the next generation of partners to be able to create that environment whereby they might be able to get some sort of transition or or payout uh, going forward. If you're in the bottom right Um, This is not a comfortable position to be in if you're a founding partner, because this is the situation that uh, that Claire was talking about, and I mentioned uh, briefly at the start of my uh, piece, which is the next generation of partners feel they've already paid you out. They're making the biggest contribution to the business. They don't feel that the founding partner is actually putting in much value anymore. Yes, they've they've built a great business, but yes, they've taken sufficient of the equity profits over time, um, and now the next generation is driving it forward. So mutiny here could be either in the form of, well, you're looking for a stipend or an annuity, or you want to stay involved in the business, but actually, you know what? Well, we don't think you're up to much anymore. Or they might even just go, okay, if we can't do that, if we can't exert sufficient power within the business, we're just going to leave and set up on our own. Remember, always remember that highly um Highly high achieving lawyers have a lot of options. Yeah, so they might be lifers in your um, in your business, but they still have a lot of options. So where do you want to get to? Well, ideally, you want some sort of organised transition so that you maintain the business. You, you as a founder, your uh, value to the business is still current, um, and you want to be able to exit the business on terms that you're happy with and that the next generation partners are happy with. Now, as Claire's put it, you could do this through a transitional agreement, a, a consultancy agreement. Um, and I've, I've noted this as agreed transition contribution and returns. So what I see a lot in, um, in the businesses I advise are a succession of partners, not necessarily founders coming up to retirement, but agreeing three, four five years out what this sort of contribution is going to be over those, that period and what sort of uh, level of profit share they might take over that period. That profit share might be directly related to firm profit, might be related, as Claire said, to some type of their performance, or it might simply be uh, 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 related to the, their still being available to the business. But having that agreed transition will really help the business retain whatever goodwill it's got and move on from it smoothly. Likewise, actually, you could, and this is this is becoming more prevalent, you could organise a shared capital event. So you could look to sell the business with the existing and uh, founder in place and the next gen in place, but allow for uh, a founder exit. Um, at some time in the future, or on uh, on that capital event, and with the next gen of partners being tied in, so that's sort of external investment, some sort of listing event um, uh, that, that that might um, that you might want to occur. So, within those transitions, how what, what's the sort of timescale? Well, as early as you possibly can think about it would be ideal. If you're coming to it, I think that what you've got to do is, is think about the business model you're, you're operating then think about which of these quadrants you find yourself in and then try and shift that if you're not already in it to that top right-hand quadrant so that you can have that organized transition. Um, so timing will will be really dependent on where, where you are as a business as early as possible. Um and I think there's, there's one more, well, a couple more tips I, I'd give on that to, to founders. And I think the first one is really, really prosaic. And that is as soon as you are able to, as soon as you're able to start making provision for your retirement through pension contributions, et cetera, or whatever investments you need to make, that can be independent of whatever happens to your business. Claire alluded to this. The future is uncertain when you get to this situation even in an organized transition it is highly emotive it is highly highly emotive people are very messy you cannot predict what's going to happen life is not fair you may have set up a brilliant business you may feel very hard done by but you cannot guarantee that that will give you the return you're after and the goalposts do move so i think that in terms of how you operate here that two-by-two two could be really useful to you in, in sorting out where you want to get to. Um, and, and looking at that as early as you can in the, in the transition process has, has got to be a good thing to do.
0: Thank you, David. Uh, that was excellent. Three questions have come in. I'm not going to answer them now. I just want to mention what the questions are so the speakers can have a think of it and maybe it'll trigger some more questions. The first one is that Claire has a succession story of her own that she, uh, she should tell because it's an excellent one uh we've been asked what does naked in naked out mean uh we can explain that it's got nothing to do with public indecency and there's a question about valuations whether a value evaluation of four times revenue would be reasonable on a firm and certainly we can we can speak to that as well but let, let's go on for now uh with fernando palais uh who is going to speak particularly about um founded transitions in family-led firms. Uh, we all know that family-led firms, businesses of any kind, are difficult to transition between generations. So, uh, Fernando, what are the? How are the issues different? Over to you. Thank okay. you, Rob. Uh,
3: thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> as I was uh, saying, all what it has been said by Claire or by David, I think that fits perfectly well. Uh, when we are working in the transition of a family. And I would say that the comment that I'm going to make, uh, I think, apply uh, to a family firm, but also apply to a good number of uh, small, medium-sized firms uh, where the uh, leadership, the the management of the firm has been uh, running the firm for ages. And then it comes the, the day when the managing partner, has to retire uh, after, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years uh, running, running the firm without any, uh, I would say, turnover uh, within the, the management. And, and then that puts uh, these, these firms, uh, as I would say, in very similar uh, position. And, and something that it has been said, but I think that is important to, to stress, and it was reflected in the survey that you had at the beginning of the of this uh, webinar is the fact that uh, the the inadequate uh, succession uh, planning uh, I think that that's one of the big uh, uh, problems and and uh, there are several I just want to to make an emphasis that based in my Experience, in my opinion, and, and dealing with a good number of firms uh, in 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 the region. Uh, well, uh, yes, there is a reference uh, about the retirement, but the, there is not the 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 internal rules of the firm uh, does not uh, really uh, cover uh, what it's needed to be covered for the succession planning so that's why uh, i have always stressed what this has been already said the the need to start well in advance the planning of of the of the retirement for the two main reasons that has been already mentioned up to now which is the economic uh, impact uh, and number two uh, the uh, the the all the different elements that have to be uh, considered in addition to the to the economic uh, but also uh, on the succession uh, in order to identify those uh, partners in the uh, new generation uh, that will be willing to take the responsibilities and 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 the lead and and there there is a good number of elements that have to be taken into consideration as well, following what David said, because if it has been a very strong partner with a very strong relations uh, and and with a very large portfolio of of clients, then uh, by all means, uh, this uh, planning is even much more uh, important because there has been the right transition, uh, not just on the responsibilities that the partner may have within the firm, but also the transition in managing and handling the portfolio of clients that this partner has been uh, handling. That's why I think that the new trends uh, and 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 what we have been seeing that uh, firms are pushing uh, more on collaboration and and to uh, change the the traditional uh, silos uh, I think uh, is uh, it's a good formula uh, once this is established in order to secure Uh, this uh, transition. Uh, On the economics, I think it is essential uh, because is there where more, uh, I would say, risk elements for a disagreement may exist. Uh, It's important to start uh, working on on them. Uh, As it has been said, if it is necessary to have a valuation of the firm in order to put the expectations of, of the partners retiring and I agree with something that that was said uh, that uh, this applies uh, not just for the founders uh, it applies for any 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 partner that has to retire after uh, when he reached the, the, the retirement age but uh, Again, there is another uh, element on this uh, succession uh, planning. And that is that uh, nowadays, uh, we have seen that partners reaching the retirement age are, can be still very productive uh, for the firm, can, con- can continue contributing. For the development of the firm, so I think it is extremely important in those negotiations, in those uh, in, in the planning, to determine exactly which is going to be the role of that particular partner uh, as of his retirement. In my personal opinion, I think it's very important that uh, within that process, a new. Uh, compensation, uh, let's call, quote, quote, plan or a new compensation formula is established for department that uh, is retiring uh, in order for him to leave whatever the compensation plan the firm has free in order for the uh, redistribution among the the rest of, of the partners. And his work what it has been already mentioned by Claire and and, 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 and David, all the economics uh, plays a very important role. But now we're seeing, uh, number one, that uh, a good number of firms have been pushing the retirement age, okay? Uh, why? Because they found that there are a good number of partners that they're still very productive at the age of of 65 and they have pushed this to 68 uh, or exceptionally uh, to, to to 70 in my opinion uh, also it plays a very important role something that that uh, you 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 mentioned and and is a what is the interest of the retirement partner i mean is a retirement partner? interested to continue within the firm or uh, it is the uh, the partner interested in uh, performing a different uh, role uh, within the firm, but still contributing, sorry, for the uh, development of of the firm or is that particular partner uh, interested in pursuing a, a different a, a different activity uh, out of the of the firm, and and when I mean a different activity, is not necessarily to go across the street and open his boutique uh, uh, for uh, assisting uh, his his clients. I think that planning ahead, uh, having a very open conversations with the a partner retiring about his interests, about uh, his financial needs, about what he has in mind, it is extremely important in order precisely to avoid that that particular partner may move out and establish his own boutique or join another firm as as consultant. Because all of us, we have seen this uh, and not just in Latin America, whatever. Okay, and uh, I think that has been obviously at, because a lack of understanding among among the partners uh, on the retirement of, of that particular uh, partner. And because very often due to the uh, non-existence uh, plea rules, on the succession, uh, then firms start negotiating the retirement of that particular partner six months uh, before the retirement date. And that's absolutely one of the worst uh, mistakes. I think that uh, it is essential, and this is a responsibility of both sides, as in any relation. The, the the management of the firm and, and the partner that is retiring and and much more if the partner that is returning is part of the management of the firm to start those uh, negotiations to build consensus to build consensus uh, especially if there are no internal rules that will uh, establish, the steps to be followed. Now, vis-a-vis family firms, eh, as I said, I think the same applies. There might be one additional element in, in family firms, which is that very often the successor of the retiring partner, and especially if it is the, the founder, is someone from the same family, okay? Uh, And then uh, here, uh, it is very important for that particular firm uh, to to be clear on the actions and decisions taken. I don't think that a family firm per se is a problem. I think that the problem is when that particular family firm is not institutionalized, is not professionalized. Uh, and do not guarantee equal opportunities to all the members, uh, all the professionals of the firm to continue their professional uh, career. If they do not have clear rules uh, and uh, clear uh, provisions on the career plan, uh, then they might uh, run certain risks and we have seen, and, and uh, Jaime Fernandez Madero, a good colleague, uh, is attending the, this uh, webinar and as well a, a good friend, Juan Jose Lopez. And they know, as much as I know, the, the, the Latin American uh, legal market, uh, then uh, very often uh, within the, 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 the family firms, if they do not have a clear, uh, internal governance rules vis-a-vis the, 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 the career plan, the compensation plan, then these firms become one of the most popular law faculties in that particular jurisdictions because the turnover of professionals is extremely high because they, they, they are clear that they do not have a future in that particular firm. So they normally are very good firms and they are there in order to gain experience and, and then to be ready to move to the next uh, opportunity, where they can really build uh, a career uh, in a firm in equal uh, in equal conditions. So, uh, just to 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 summarize, uh, I think it's very important uh, what uh, it has been said uh, it's very important to have the adequate uh, succession planning rules. I think it is of paramount importance uh, to start uh, discussing this uh, well in advance. Uh, I think I have always said that five years is the ideal uh, and, and the worst scenario is six months uh, before. Uh, I think it's very, very important uh to to be clear that the new generation is willing to take those responsibilities to take the lead, uh because as Claire said very likely they are not interested uh and 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 that's another problem for the firm uh so uh, I think it's extremely important uh to, to, to understand exactly what is the, the interest of, of the new generation and not to leave these discussion just among three partners. Uh, I mean, to have a more broader uh, understanding uh, and, 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 and to build that a uh, consensus uh, as I was uh, uh, mentioning. And on the economic uh, well, as I said, uh, it is important within those early conversations to put on the table, which are the expectations of, of the partner that is leaving uh, in order to be clear uh, how the firm will address that and if it is necessary to do the necessary valuation or, or or to bring uh, outside uh, professionals to advise the firm uh, on, on those particular issues, because the partners do, are not necessarily the experts to to, to handle those uh, uh, financial uh, issues, and and it is extremely important to have a clear, uh, I would say, uh, data, financial data of the firm, in order to be clear of the where the firm can go, and and. And to put the the expectations of the partner in the right level. So I I think that we could uh, stay uh, for hours talking about this, but you also asked me to say a word about my personal uh, experience. Uh, Well, my personal experience is, uh, yes, I retired from from my firm uh, at the age of uh, 65, but it was a progressive retirement. Uh, in our firm, we have two main divisions: uh, the corporate commercial division and the intellectual property division. And each one of the divisions had a different, uh, I would say, corporate governance. And um, in the commercial, uh, corporate commercial division, where I was the, the managing partner, and I, I, I think that I had a very strong position leading the, the, the firm, uh, the the retirement age was 65. And, and then uh, due to uh, international commitments with the International Bar Association and other uh, international organizations, I always built a very strong uh, team uh, because it was the only way for me to have the time to devote Uh, to the other, uh, I would say, uh, responsibilities that I had taken with these international organizations, which it was clear for me and and, and for my partners, that uh, the time invested was going to be retributed to the firm on the networking and on the business relations that we were building and also something that I did, and I strongly recommend to colleagues. I didn't keep that relation for myself. I, I always push to bring uh, other partners uh, to to all the different meetings of these international organizations, in order for them as well, to start building relations in their own uh, areas uh, of, uh, of expertise. So that uh, proof uh, uh, that it was the right approach, and 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 I was the last one of the founding partners to retire from the corporate commercial division, and there was already the new generation ready to take over, and they took over, and 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 they uh, start managing uh, the firm, and 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 in fact. It is interesting to say, and I can say it uh, without any, any, any is not confidential because I have discussed this with a good number of people. Uh, in the uh, corporate governance regulations about retirement, it was clear that once the uh, last uh, funding partner retired and his retirement compensation had been paid, then the new generation was free uh, to take decisions uh, vis-a-vis the name of the firm, for instance. Yeah. And uh, they took, after five years of my retirement- Ananda, we,
0: we must move on to Zulon, if you could wrap up, please. That's...
3: Okay, just to finish, uh, after uh, five <coughs> years of my retirement, uh, due to the, I would say, economic crisis uh, in Venezuela and other uh, elements, they decided to change the name of the firm and they went into a a fantasy name. So if you plan this, if you discuss this, and if you have good, uh, I would say communication and and you have
0: a good uh, corporate governance, I think is the key. Thank you very much, Fernando. Okay, so we've talked about the need for a plan. We've talked about how things can get messy. We've talked about how this needs to be tackled in good time, and we've talked about valuation. Clearly, these change the contractual relationships between the partners as well and they may even raise regulatory issues. This is exactly where Zulan's legal practice is focused. So Zulon, walk us through uh, the, the, particularly how, how the government's documents need to be, be, to be dealt with, uh, whether there are any uh, regulatory issues to be taken into account, and any pitfalls that you've come across in your practice uh, with, with clients undergoing this kind of transition
4: um thanks very much rob um so in an ideal situation um, ideal world um all partnerships and professional firms as they grow will kind of evolve their governance governance arrangements their partnership agreements to reflect that um evolution in their business and also a, their succession plan if they have one but unfortunately that's not really the, always the case uh, uh, as our kind of straw poll um, at the outset showed um, half of our audience don't have a succession plan at the moment. So I wouldn't be surprised if their governance arrangements also don't don't kind of reflect their succession plans either. Um, Even where you do have a succession plan, which might be absolutely brilliant on paper, it's only really as good as as its practical execution. And part of that implementation involves kind of embedding the succession plan in the firm's partnership or constitutional agreement and regularly reviewing that all the time and updating it to reflect any changes in, in the succession plan or the firm strategy. I think that's where some firms kind of go wrong sometimes. It, uh, the governance, uh, the, the partnership agreement is always the last thing that people think about. There isn't really a, a one size fits all in terms of the provisions you'd have in a, in a partnership agreement that deals with succession planning. It's really kind of highly bespoke to a business, the, the type of partnership you are, the culture you are but the kind of key provisions that you'd need to consider in the partnership agreement in the context of succession planning are typically um the transition of management responsibility um so often the founders are the managing partner or on the executive committee um how do you transition that responsibility to so that to the next generation so the things you might want to think about is whether you want to introduce a term limit for the founders um, and how you elect, how you kind of nominate and elect, um, identify the next generation who are going to take over those trans, um, uh, management responsibilities. Um, and whether the retiring founders um, have, have responsibilities to kind of uh, enable that transition of responsibility to the next generation um, and help them with um, kind of mentoring, etc., to get them up to speed and upskill them um, to give them the ability to kind of take on that leadership role. Uh, alongside the constitutional arrangements, you might also want to think about whether you kind of have formal coaching and mentoring for the next generation, as well as, as, well as actually for your retiring partners, because often that's overlooked. Sometimes you know part of that transition is also helping your founders and your retiring partners transition to a new life after, after their baby, uh, the, the the firm that they worked for often many decades to build. Um, so the the next critical thing to consider is obviously the transition of equity and voting rights. And often you kind of in in this directory we're talking about sometimes decisions that maybe founders want to retain veto rights over. Um, and whether you want to have weighted voting, so which gives founders uh, a greater degree of voting control than um, non-founders and junior partners. And also dealing with deadlock, how do you deal with that? You really need to kind of consider that in your partnership agreement so that you don't get to a situation where you can't take any important decisions for the firm going forward. And obviously the the next kind of important provisions are the profit sharing arrangements. And again, that will kind of depend on what your succession plan looks like, um, uh, what the deal might be agreed between the next generation and the founders in terms of what uh, financial rights the founders are gonna retain, whether that's uh, some type of annuity after they retire or retaining, uh, retaining a share of the equity going forward. Um, if, if it's a goodwill model um, and not a tenancy model, um, how is that kind of transition of equity gonna happen to the next generation? What are the valuation mechanisms? Um, uh, What are the annuity provisions? Are there any anti-embarrassment provisions? So for example, if, if the founder leaves and within three years the business is sold, Um, but they've already sold their equity, maybe they want to retain a right to kind of have a share of the sale proceeds within a certain window after that retirement. So there's kind of lots of ways you can cut the cake in your governance documents around the financial arrangements and um, that will often come after you've had those conversations with your fellow partners and people like Claire and David who who would advise on the kind of um, strategy side and and financial aspects of, of kind of introducing those provisions. Also, you need to kind of think about if you're going to move to a perpetual, perpetual kind of partnership model, um, what about transitioning the capital? So often the founders will have the, the bulk of the capital in the business, and as they retire, they'll want to withdraw that. Um, and the business will obviously need working capital going forward, so the next generation will need to contrib- come step up, contribute and make up the shortfall. So ensuring that you have provisions in your agreement around that, as well as kind of ensuring from a financial perspective that the next generation can have the ability to make those funds, and whether that's through their own, own kind of personal funds or partner capital loan, or perhaps even retained profits. So those things would have to be factored into the agreement. Um, the other kind of things I'll, I'll briefly mention are obviously transfer of client relationships. You might want to kind of hardwire that hardwire those obligations into your partnership agreement so that the next generation have confidence that the founders are going to make a real effort to transition client relationships. And also you want to ensure that the provisions around admission of new partners, the next generation and retirement of partners and um, founders and senior partners are also kind of um, reflect your succession plan. So you might want to consider introducing a mandatory age um, retirement age in your agreement if you don't already have one. Um, depending on your jurisdiction, there might be issues issues around discrimination of having a mandatory retirement age. So, so those things would have to be considered. And the other kind of key protections for the business is you often the transition from founders to the next generation can be a period of great instability and um, uncertainty. So the kind of th- key things to protect the business going forward as you go through that kind of transitional period might be having lock-in provisions which would restrict the next generation of partners from, um, from retiring within a certain period so you don't have Partners retiring, um, kind of serving notice to retire um, within five years of, of the transition, to to give the firm that stability. The other kind of key protection you would want to consider are restrictive covenants. Obviously, you'd want to make sure that your founders, once they re, once they retire, they're not going to go off and set up shop with their with their name um, um, somewhere else uh, as a competitor. That would kind of defy the whole object for the succession planning and kind of. Um, you know, uh, will completely go against the interests of the next generation who have stepped up to the plate. And interesting, Fernando mentioned the prote- protection of the firm name, that can be quite a sensitive issue. Um, founders will sometimes want to retain um, the, the right to kind of use their name going forward if if something happened to the firm. So if the firm kind of um, was sold or um, uh, became insolvent within five years, the, the the founder might want to use the name to kind of um, set up another, another business, etc. Or the next generation might indeed want to have the ability to change the name of the firm going forward. And lastly, I'll just mention dispute resolution. Obviously, um, if, you know, it's great that partners, if you're all speaking to each other um, and you're communicating your objectives and your goals and um, coming up with a, a fantastic succession plan to take the firm into the next 10 years and 20 years after that. Um, that's great, but often and some of these issues can be very tricky. Um, so, ensuring that you have uh, robust kind of dispute resolution provisions in your agreement is quite key. So, um, having a provision around mediation, um, obviously, that's not compulsory, but um, can be helpful to kind of kickstart discussions, constructive discussions between partners where there are disputes. And obviously, confidential arbitration is also quite key so that you don't end up having to go off to the High Court and air your dirty laundry in the public courts.
0: Great. Thank you, Zulon. Okay, so we're at the top of the hour very nearly. And there have been a couple of really good questions that came in. Uh, the first one I'd, I'd like to put to you, David. Uh, the question is, the planning is a nice word to go around the real problem in firms, which is the ability to discuss honestly and openly difficult issues in advance, where partners have fears and uncertainties. Without facing that reality, succession becomes very difficult. Would you like to take that one?
2: Yeah, I think one of the one of the critical things in any business is um, recognizing with honesty the situation you find yourself in, and that's why I started my piece with that analysis of well, what model are you running? It's not the model you you want to be running or you think you might be running. It's what are you actually running, so that you can be honest about what are the um, elements that are. Uh, in your favor if you're negotiating an exit or not and that is a that is one of the elements of that honesty within those conversations and being as I said right at the end it's really emotive but being um being clear that it's emotive actually can start to help you diffuse that if you acknowledge that this isn't all a nice cut and dried logical little piece of uh, of legal work that you're going to do but it's it involves emotive issues around value, status, and all those good stuff. That good stuff, then you're actually going to be quite a long way to to um, uh, to, to reaching a solution. I, I think as the question is sort of alluding to, very easy to say, really difficult to do. So you have to have the will to do it. But you know what? If you've had the will to set up a really fantastically successful business. I think if you go to the well, you know, for that last time and say, right, well, I want to re- make a really fantastic exit. If you set that as a challenge to yourself as one of those high achieving people, I think usually that challenge will be risen to.
0: Great. Thank you. Claire, uh, Fernando mentioned collaborating with other partners, but you've got a particular story to tell around that. you want to tell it?
1: Yes, I think it's just it's an example of um, a, a small example of, of a, an element of succession, succession transitioning I think and successful transitioning uh, when I joined Bosicott, I was very lucky to work for um, a partner who has since retired called Cliff Cooper who was my mentor for the whole time that he was there um, and he was a wonderful partner to work for and um, you know taught me an awful lot and he was talking about retirement really many many years before he did retire and I remember going out for lunch with him one day and he, um, he said that he appreciated that I wanted to take my bit of the business, which was the professional practices group, which at the, that time he was heading up in a slightly different direction. And he felt that he was not uh, trying to stop me from doing it, but he just um, wanted to give me free rein to take it in a, in a different direction. And he said that he would like to hand over to me two quite key clients And because this would be the sort of step up that I needed to be able to take the business in a slightly different direction. And I remember saying to him at the time, but you're not retiring for years yet. Are you sure you want to do this? You know, we are all to some extent measured on on billing and other things, but we're all to some extent measured on billing. And he was going to transfer across these two clients, which I already knew and they knew me. So it would be okay from the client's point of view. But he said um, said to me, uh, you've got more to gain than I have to lose. And I just will never forget those words. And I sort of didn't say anything in response. And I thought, well, that that is incredibly generous of him. Anyway, a few years down the track, we we um that those clients did transfer across to me. And a few years down the track, we again were having lunch or something. And he said to me, "You see, it was the right thing to do." He said that was the springboard you needed to take the business in a different direction to win client X, Y, and Z, which I'd won since. He said I've benefited from it too because you brought business into you know you brought profits into the business. He said it it was the right thing to do. And it's just a small example of how he recognised way ahead of time that if he gave something up and passed it across to me and invested in me as somebody who wanted to just slightly change things, um, it would ultimately benefit him and also the firm.
0: Great. Thanks, Claire. There's a question for Fernando, particularly. In family firms, uh, what do you do when you have sibling or cousin disputes about who gets to lead? And in that context, how do you then take, uh, how do you protect the interests of the retiring partner?
3: Well, as I said, I think it is to to generate it and to build consensus. Um, And I think that uh, the uh, leading partners had to make use of their... Negotiation skills uh, in order to find the right solution for the partnership, the retirement partner, and the successor partners. Uh, and, 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 and to work hard in order to combine the, the, the right formula uh, that uh, will put in, in jeopardy the, the firm.
0: Great, thank you. Okay, I'd like to make a comment about the valuation question and then anybody else would like to that would like to chip in please do so and then uh, Zulon, I'm going to ask you if you could address the naked naked out and what are the options to that. In terms of valuation, the question was is a a valuation of four times revenue uh, reasonable and this was for a law firm Um, it's quite a common multiple uh, that in, 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 in technology companies. Um, It it is also, I think it's it's become topical recently because uh, Mishkondorea are talking about a valuation of 750 million pounds on their IPO later this year that they hope to achieve, and that would be a multiplier of roughly four times their estimated uh, revenue for this year. Um, It it used to be very uncommon for money to change change hands in in mergers or acquisitions between firms, but it's becoming more common. As I recall, the media reported a few years back that Dentons paid £11 million for the Scottish firm Maclay-Murray and Spence. And also just interestingly today in in the media, the, the, the reports of founders selling their stakes or part of their stakes in listed firms And one founder uh, realizing 10 million pounds and another founder realizing 61 million pounds for the equity that they held in their firms. So it seems as though listing uh, law firms brings a different dynamic to it, Uh, it changes the chemistry. Uh, Claire, this is really your bailiwick and I apologize for trading on it. What, What do you think?
1: Well, I should start by saying that I'm not a valuations expert, although I work with uh, people who are, and I've sort of picked things up along the way, if you like. Um, I think it really it depends on the type of business. You know, if you're talking about a small law firm, um, you know, high street firm, for example, then the four times multiple is probably excessive, and it may only be one times turnover. And I I think the the principle behind all of it is the future of the business, not the past. I, I know you. You know you do need to look at the past to, as a track record, but you really need to be looking at the future value of the business. So I think it's sort of slightly one extreme to the other. I, I agree with you. The four times multiple is seen out there among some of the bigger businesses, um, but the smaller end, perhaps family-owned or perhaps you know more high street um, businesses, are probably more like one times turnover.
0: Great, thank thank you for that. Thank you, Zulon. Naked in, naked out, and anything else you'd like to add?
1: Hi, uh,
4: yes. Um, so Naked naked, in that, naked Out um, is also kind of referred to as a tenancy model of partnership. So it basically means um, a per- perpetual partnership model where new partners come into the firm, they contribute their capital, and during the, the life of their partnership in the firm, they make profits um um according to the profit sharing arrangement of the firm of the firm and when they retire they effectively get their capital back and that's it they don't get anything else for their goodwill uh, for goodwill in the firm and that can't contrast with the um, goodwill model where people actually have um, financial equity in the firm so which they can buy and sell whether that's during their partnership or when they exit So it's much more rarer to have the the kind of goodwill model in kind of certainly the larger professional services firms, unless, of course, they're listed as they are. uh, Some of them are in the UK at the moment, but in many jurisdictions, of course, it it will mainly be the partnership, tenancy model partnership.
0: Great. Thank you very much. But thank you also to our esteemed panellists. This has been a fascinating webinar Um, and onward and upward to the next one. Thank you.